podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80sruled.com for more 1980s awesomeness. Did changes to sports in the 1980s make games more exciting today? Fill in 1980s on your best decades bracket and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the 80s. An objective defense of the 80s from a couple of idiots. I trick you every week. You think it's going to be that, but it's not. (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of, you know, I I swear I thought about this earlier and now I don't remember what it was. From a couple of sports fanatics. Sports fanatics. Hey, yeah, that's for the original fan probably, right? Mm -hmm. My name is Will and joining me as always is my friend and the more athletic of the two of us, Ray. Hello, everyone. Hello, Will. He's also the co-host of the show. Yeah, yeah, that too. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about great 1980s sports moments with our guest, Dan Flaherty, who wrote a book called Great 1980s Sports Moments. And we'll also be sharing some of our thoughts and feelings and experiences about sports, I guess, that we may have experienced in the 1980s. It'll be a short story on my side. (laughs) Maybe I could explain that too. Before we get started, though, don't forget to like and rate and review and subscribe. Do anything we used to tell you to what? Knock on a door. Go knock. Can you knock on doors now? I don't, is that too political to even ask? That well, question? what you have to do is you have to yeah. knock on the door. Yeah. And instead of a flaming bag of poop, yeah. you just leave a flyer <laughs> oh. that says, listen to the idiots with all the information and you run. Do you set that it, on fire? No. Oh, okay. You just leave that there yeah. and you run away. Mm. So when they come out, you hide in the bushes and watch them get useful information. <laughs> watch them get enlightened. Right. And they're like... You know, I wish it was just poop. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe maybe yeah. that's our podcast. That's a tagline. The equivalent of a flaming pack of dog poo. <laughs> oh, boy. No. And actually, the opposite is true, because we're really excited to announce that we are now part of the 80s Ruled Network. Mm. What that mm. means is, look, we're going to still continue to bring you the same 1980s awesome content, but now we're part of an organization that does the same, only in different formats. So you can find the 80s Ruled on Facebook, Look them up or at the80sruled.com. Tons of fun things about the 1980s, little bits and highlights and videos and things you might not have considered in the last 40 years. But you will now, or you're like us and you think about it all the time. Yeah. So keep an eye out for more from us and the 80s ruled. All right. Hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. Today on 80s News, this is really cool news. We've been talking about this on and off for a while now, certainly as long as we spoke to CMS last year. Catherine Mary Stewart, to you folks who aren't friendly with her like us. (laughs) But we just got some more information regarding the possible requel of The Last Starfighter. Screenwriter Gary Witta, who wrote The Book of Eli, Rogue One, he recently revealed during a Twitch stream that, quote, we are right on the one yard line. After pushing the boulder uphill for years, we are very, very close. I believe it will happen. What he's referring to is, again, it's a the film that will pick up where Alex and Maggie last left off in the our, one of our favorite films from 1984 and continue the story. So so Gary Wood is working with the original screenwriter, uh, Jonathan Betchel, to come up with a new way of you know advancing the story. And he shared, uh, to follow up with this story, he shared on, I don't know, Twitter or something like that, a sizzle reel, mm-hmm. which we have learned is a reel of different images set to music. 
to get, oftentimes it's to get producers or filmmakers excited about the potential for a movie so they want to make it. But hey, it worked for me too. I watched, I watched it. Did you watch it? I got excited after I saw it. <laughs> I did not watch it. All right, well, I there didn't. you go. And that was the 80s news. <laughs> no, there's more about that. Widow goes on to explain that he doesn't see it as a reboot or a remake, that instead it, he, he says it's more like a passing of the torch to another generation. And he likened it to The Force Awakens. Are you concerned now? Uh, is Kathleen Kennedy involved? No, no, no. This is not a Disney property, as far as we know so far. Then I have no concerns yet. Okay. And the way he says it is like, hey, you wanted to see uh, Han Solo and Princess Leia, but at the same time, you know, they're not going to be the folks that are going to be able to carry the story forward. Now, actor Lance Guest and actor uh, Catherine Mary Stewart, they're not of the age of, say, a Harrison Ford. Now, they're still young enough to get in the cockpit of a, mm -hmm. what's it called, a Gunstar? Shoot, I should know this. I'm, I'm getting kicked off of some Facebook groups now <laughs> following this conversation. But, yeah. you, you know, so they're not necessarily retiring. But in any case, he describes this film instead as a requel. It's a sequel, but it's also kind of a reboot that brings the franchise back. And on the concept reel, you see a bunch of images that I think, you know, got me excited about it. And he refers to the film as The Last Starfighters. See, I like that. That's pretty cool. It's very alien aliens. Oh, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. So that's kind of cool. I like that. What, what kind of lousy music they play in this sizzler? Well, scoring the sizzle reel was a new arrangement by a new composer of the original theme from Craig Saffin. Okay, I'll allow it then. So, Widow goes on to say that his hope is that by sharing this sizzle reel, that'll get the internet abuzz in much the way that folks rallied behind Deadpool and brought that to fruition. Because we may never mm -hmm. have seen a Deadpool, but for that quote-unquote test footage that was made, which I think many folks believe Ryan Reynolds probably leaked it himself. <laughs> of course. Hopefully we'll see that type of excitement around this film as well. Maybe we could start a movement. Hashtag The Last Starfighters. Hmm. We could try it. In other 80s news, we have learned from Variety, there is a series that was ordered at HBO in December of 2019. It's based on Jeff Perlman's nonfiction book, Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be cool if they get the right people to, to act mm. in it, you know. The main one's going to be who plays Larry Bird. Well, part of the update to this story is, in fact, who will be playing Larry Bird. <laughs> playing Larry Bird will be comedian Bo Burnham. I don't know who that is. <laughs> okay. Well, he, he got his start as a uh, YouTuber before he transitioned into stand-up comedy and acting. He's, he's released five comedy albums, the most recent being What in 2013. But he's, he's appeared in The Big Sick, Promising Young Woman, a bunch of other films that you haven't seen. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's, he's had parts on uh, TV shows like Parks and Rec and The Kroll Show. So maybe you've spotted him on there. And if you see him, you, you may recognize him. He does look somewhat like Larry Bird. You could imagine if they give him that, you know, sort of bleach blonde uh, mullet, if, he may be able to pull it off. Yeah. If he looks like Larry Bird yep. and he can act like a yep. then they nailed it. <laughs> now, also we've learned that in the part of Pat Riley will be Adrian Brody. I like that one. That's a good hire. Yeah. He's been in some decent movies. Oh, sure. He's been in uh, The Pianist. He's been in uh, The King Kong, Grand mm -hmm. Budapest Hotel. Yep, Summer of Sam. I wonder if the audition is they just have like a stack of folding chairs hmm. and see who can throw the one the farthest. <laughs> Isn't that Riley who would do that? You're thinking of Bobby Knight, the chair chucker. God damn yeah. it, look at that. <laughs> see, this is what I said at the beginning. <laughs> Ray's going to share some stories. <laughs> and I, I'm going to listen. Along with, uh, now, uh, so I don't know any of these athletes' names, but there's some other casting uh -huh. notes in here. 
Jerry Buss. Do you know who that is? Uh, I think that's the Lakers owner at that time. Might still be. All right. So John C. Riley, you got him there. See, that's, uh, a, I like that one. Jerry West. Uh, Jerry West. That's also the owner of the Lakers. I don't know who any of these people yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> I know the name. Yeah, I know. I know the players, but the, okay. the ownership group is. Mm. Eh. All right. So now we're in a position where I'm going to name some players and actors who are playing them, and I don't know who the actors are. <laughs> That's the opposite problem. All right. So Quincy Isaiah will be playing Magic Johnson. Solomon mm -hmm. Hughes will be playing Kareem. Um, nah, I don't. I don't know. Any, I don't know who it, any of these other actors or athletes are. It doesn't matter. So. Hopefully the show's good. Yeah. Like I said, I'm only watching it because I want to see Larry Bird. Yeah. That's the only reason. You want to uh, see the story of him, of Larry Bird unfold, or you want to see the, just nah, the actor I, pulling I, off his... Yeah, I, I couldn't give two about the Lakers. I'm a Larry Bird fan, and they better do him justice mm. and show him as a dominant force. Gotcha. So Max Borenstein serves as a writer and executive producer, and Adam McKay directed the pilot and will also be executive uh, producing it. All right. Hey, in other 80s news, speaking about sports. So, you know, we just concluded our Smash Madness 2021, which has nothing to mm -hmm. do with uh, March Madness, except there's a bracket. Later on the show, we're going to be talking with Dan Flaherty about March Madness. So I thought it would be neat to point out that in this March Madness, and I don't follow this kind of sports. Do you follow March Madness? No. No. Okay. Well, no. I, fill, I fill my bracket out mm -hmm. and then I just toss it in the trash and wait till the end when they tell me who won. <laughs> So, all right, hey, we got that in common as far as sports go. First first thing, I think, that we both, neither of us pay attention to. So, I did learn, however, and actually my wife tipped me off to this because she actually does follow it somewhat. And she used to, years ago, this, you know, she was very into college basketball. But this year, it seems like, unlike any other year, we've had a number of upsets where you have, look, now it's going to sound like I'm, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to tell you right ahead, <laughs> I don't. Lower seed teams beating higher seed teams. Is that how you say it? I think that's how you'd say it. That, that's close enough. Okay. So a number. And just looking at this uh, article from People Magazine from March 25th. So that was fairly recently. They list at least 12 on here. Uh, most, uh, I guess, you know, important to us, if, if we can draw any connection at all to this. Well, I guess two. One, in the first round, Oral Roberts beats Ohio State. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Oral Roberts was a 15th seed, and the Buckeyes were a number two seed. So I know that that's, you know, uh, quite surprising. Uh, hopefully somebody uh, was able to make money off of that, I suppose. Legally, of course, legally. Not mm -hmm. suggesting anything shady. And then the other one that was, I guess, again, another one that's closer to home, but a more optimistic, or a more hopeful story, at least <laughs> at the time, they're probably <laughs> not in it anymore, was that Ohio University beat Virginia in the first round. And the University of Virginia was a number four seed and Ohio University was at number 13. So I don't know if this is exciting to somebody that's listening, I'm sure. I think that most of the major teams yeah. just said, screw this pandemic thing. Mm. I don't want to play in a bubble. Yeah. Get me the hell out of here. Because, mm. you know, they got lives. They want to go do things. So you mean they didn't play or they just didn't care about the outcome? I think having these players trapped in a bubble. Mm-hmm. And forcing them to do nothing oh. but play basketball yeah. just ruin their game. Oh, I see. They need to be out and about having fun mm. to be to be who they are. Because gotcha. the good teams are going to be in the NBA. They're superstars. Right. They got to hone their craft of networking and playing with the hangover. Yeah, doing 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 the things that they do. Yeah, most of them are you know probably shady and <laughs> underhanded and criminal, but mm. that's what makes a good basketball player. I see. I'm just guessing. Yes, but. I think that's why these teams 
went down so early. They're like, nope, got to go. You know, listening to last week's show and this one, I'm, I'm really, and this came up several months ago. I really need to get a clip I play when you're just completely bull- <laughs> it's got to be a quote from some movie. I don't know what it is yet. Just some, it's the shorthand for. I, I think everybody can tell when I'm. Bull- I'm only learning now, and only because we're doing the show. If it was you and if it was the two of us talking in the garage, I remember one summer we came back from some party down the street. He drove us mm-hmm. in the back of a golf cart. We were hanging on for dear life while we were both yeah. had had a lot of drinks. We were talking in your garage till like three o'clock in the morning. I don't know if now I'm thinking back. You probably made up a lot of those stories. I don't remember any of them offhand, but at the time, I remember leaving quite amazed. Like, wow, fascinating stories here. Uh, hey, I, I know a lot of things. But that's true, too. So you just don't know. Yeah. They just come to me at random yeah. times. So when we get Dan on the show later, let's ask him about March Madness. Like, what changed? Is this the sort of stuff we would have seen in the 1980s? I don't know. I don't know, because I honestly just don't know. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Uh-huh. Hey, today on the show, as we mentioned, we're going to be talking about great 1980s sports moments. And, well, some of those are going to involve us in our childhoods. Mm -hmm. So great, I'll put in air quotes. But later, we're going to be speaking with the author of great 1980s sports moments, Mr. Dan Flaherty. Before we get started talking about sports here, just want to take a moment. And as I mentioned just a minute ago, our Smash Madness 2021 bracket is done. And thank God it's over. Oh, my goodness. It's very stressful. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a fun, light thing. Jeez, Louise. People writing us hate mail mm-hmm. about our choices. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Next next year, it's polls. But just from now on, if we do this ever again, every year I say we shouldn't do this. It's too exhausting. And then we wind up doing it because it seems cool at the time. Mm-hmm. So Braddock won the whole thing. Again, that's uh, Chuck Norris's character in the Missing in Action films. And the winner mm-hmm. of our bracket was Kathy. So Kathy is the winner of the 1980s mystery box. It's got at least a handful of vintage, actual vintage 1980s items in them, at least two of which, when Lonnie was putting together, she told me what they were. I want wanted to keep. I didn't. I did consider going to the antique mall near us and just buying some replacement <laughs> junk. But no, I didn't. <laughs> I'll let those go by. And also coming in second place is uh, Rich. So Rich will be reaching out to you as well. Find out what, 19, not what, 1980s, what items of idiots merchandise you'd like to possess. And we'll get that to you. All right, so hey, 1980s, sports, experiences, highlights, professional games you may have seen. Yeah, I'll start with this one. Yep. Uh, as you know, on our episode where we, where we were talking about horrible things that happened to us in the 80s, mm-hmm. one of them I brought up was is uh, when I slipped and fell and then it cost us going to the World mm. Series. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Right. right. So I never actually pointed out, though, right. that the next year my team did go to, to the world, our local City's yep. World Series. Oh, that's exciting. So we lost, but... Okay. Well, hey. I, I still got there, and that was the last year I played, so it was okay. cool. Now, is that the last year you played because you aged out of the league? Yeah, that was the last year to be in that league, so it was done. Okay. Did you ever play baseball as a kid? Certainly not on a team. I would play, play sports with my friends in the neighborhood. I wasn't expected or regarded as a, as a good player. Mm-hmm. Part of the challenge I had was, is I've been wearing glasses since third grade, but when we would play sports or do stuff, I'd take them off. Well, of course. So my depth perception was for sure. Well, that's that's actually funny because that year was when I yep. realized I could, had no depth perception. I'd play the oh. outfield. And that's when I realized I needed that I needed glasses Yeah, because I would be playing center field and the ball would be coming at me and I'd charge in and it'd yeah. be 20 feet behind oh, me. I'm like, yeah. mm-hmm. huh, depth perception, problem. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's weird. And it didn't occur to me to later that, oh, that's part of the issue. You know, so people would just regard me again as a, you know, a terrible player, <laughs> chosen last. Oh, God, I guess I got to pick him. He's my friend, but Jesus, guy stinks. Because, yeah, you throw, <laughs> get a fly ball, I'm going to miss it. Because I had no idea. Where, I couldn't see it in the sky. And <laughs> you, know you know what the trick is? Yeah. You have to set yourself up when you have no depth perception yeah. so that the ball comes at an angle next to you. Because hmm. you can see it yeah. if it's next to you. But if it's coming right oh. at you, you can't see it. I see. You got to get it to the side, to the huh. left or right. So you have to just run like 10 feet to the left or right, gotcha. get your bearings, and then track it down. But then you still have to be fast enough to catch it. Hmm. It's almost like to compensate for the depth perception, you're like running back and forth, taking in all right. this data with just your it's one like, good eye. Or yeah, whatever. it's like radar. Yeah. <laughs> boop, boop. You're whistling boop. to this guy. <laughs> yeah. That's sonar, buddy. No, I, uh, and I, we talked about before, The only we played basketball. Again, I couldn't tell where the hoop was, how far away it was. So the, the best things I could do at sports were just being physical. So yeah, I could block somebody who had the ball. You know, mm-hmm. or when we played football, we talked about this that you know Don Ape taught me how to dive bomb, as he said, because I could tell who had the ball. If I could tell, <laughs> I'd be tackling them. Hopefully, yeah. I wouldn't be tackling someone on my own team because I couldn't, yeah. tell. <laughs> couldn't tell the difference. They don't have uniforms on, you know. It's just yeah. No, the only the closest I ever got was my friends. We had my friends belonged to a football league in our neighborhood. And I was, quote, on the team, I guess. And I was put in a game once. And again, I couldn't see. So the only, the only play I, I was in on was a kickoff. So all I had to do was run downfield and you know, figure out who had the ball and just stop that person. <laughs> and that's the only thing I did. And I did stop the person. Yeah. And then I was out of the game, which is fine. I did play basketball one season. Oh, okay. And as you're fully yeah. aware, I'm not very tall. Okay. So I was probably four foot something when I played basketball. Mm-hmm. I didn't care for it playing on a team yeah. because I didn't understand how plays worked. Okay, yeah. So I think the entire season I played, I took one shot. Okay. I threw up a half-court shot and hit it. Wow. So in my entire basketball career, <laughs> I made one shot from half-court, and that was the only shot I took the entire season. So that's a high shooting percentage. 100%. Yeah, that's 100% from half court. Just put that on the record there. Yeah. I call that a highlight of my sports because the rest of that season sucked ass. Yeah. I, I did not like playing basketball. Yeah. I like playing in the yard, yeah. you know, playing uh, three strikes or around the world. Sure. I like that stuff. Yeah. But when they started talking about pick and roll and all that crap, I was yeah. like, I don't understand any of this. Well, now you remind me, you know, and I say this thing about depth perception, but I know another issue for me was. The psychology of it. Like I didn't understand how you just accomplishing anything. You can't be in your head, you know, you got to just kind of rely on muscle memory and practice and you can't mm-hmm. think about it. If you think about it, you get in the way of that reflex, you know? Right. And my dad would, the very few times, it's probably, I could think of once or twice that we ever tossed the ball in the backyard, that iconic scene, like Americana, <laughs> you know, idyllic Americana, Norman Rockwell painting. And he would just get furious with me, you know, <laughs> for missing the ball or for how I threw. And I was like eight years old. I was just learning, you know, and mm-hmm. that was, in, that would be in my head for the rest of my life, you know, for the most part. Now it's not. Now I learned how to just uh, put that sort of stuff out of your head and you just sort of rely on instinct and, you know, yeah. but yeah, when I was a kid, I could hear my dad being in my head when I'd be playing with my friends, like get yeah, throw for <laughs> whatever, you know, like, you're right. I do. And I just throw it into the ground or, you know, yeah. mm. that was him trying to teach you. Yeah, like Tiger Woods dad. You're, He'd be banging on pots and pans. God, you're so inconsiderate. Yeah. Guy goes out of his yeah. way to try and teach you something. Yeah. 
It's called hard love. Yes. Yes. You're right. You're right. Well, now, now, now I'm fine. So it's probably the combination of my dad berating me, mm-hmm. wearing contact lenses, mm-hmm. you know, like when we play or I wear, or wearing my glasses. If we do cornhole, I've got glasses on. So that's not a problem. It's not like a contact sport. And, uh, you know, my, myself sort of overcoming these sort of, you know, yeah, anxieties, psychology, you know, learning yeah. Did you go and see any pro sports or, you know, teams or high school football yes. or anything when you were a kid? We used to go watch the Indians because mm-hmm. you could basically roll down there with $3 in your pocket. Yeah. Sure. Because nobody went to see the Indians in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s. So, as depicted in uh, <laughs> Major League. Yeah. I mean, literally, we'd go sit where we wanted yeah. and no one cared. Yeah. And then uh, we always went to see uh, the Cleveland Force soccer games out at the old Richfield Coliseum. Hmm. Okay. which was awesome. They built a stadium in the middle of nowhere. Oh, you told me about this. Because it was before. because it was halfway between Cleveland and Akron. So they built a stadium out there. Right. It's gone now. They tore it down. Hmm. Sucks, but I saw Metallica there. Oh, wow. But uh, yeah, we used to go to the soccer games back w- and they used to have Darth Vader as their mascot <laughs> until Lucas found out. Till Lucas Films found out <laughs> yep. and they took it away from him. Oh my but he'd goodness. come out at the beginning in a smoke and everything. And when oh, you're a kid, yeah. it was amazing. They played the Imperial March? Basically. Mm. I mean, it literally was wow. like that. That would be exciting. I'd yeah. want to go just for that, I think. And then on occasion, I'd go to a Cavs game. Not very often, though. Maybe I one or two the entire time, Yeah, you know, as a kid. And I didn't see a football game until I was an adult. Yeah, I think football is so. the only sport I saw professionally when I was in high school. Or in the eighties, I should say, because I, I think I was younger than high school. Actually, I think I was in elementary school. My and again, my dad. I, my, I've said this before. My dad wasn't into sports. My dad is a naturally athletic guy. He's sort of a guy who's naturally good at whatever he wants to do. He just yeah. doesn't want to do a whole lot of things. But <laughs> whatever he would do, he'd just be good at it. So he was good at sports, but he didn't. He wasn't into professional sports. So neither am I. But my uncle, who's my godfather, the guy who pretended to uh, abduct me that one time and scared my neighbor, mm-hmm. he he was, and he worked for a company where he'd have they'd get like a Jets and Giants tickets, ah. and so just like on a, sa- a Sunday, he would you know pop by. Hey, you want to go to a football game? Like, yeah, I've never been. That'd be cool. It was like I'll buy you a hot dog and whatever. <laughs> Yeah. You got abducted again. <laughs> yes, this didn't happen on the street. We were he would be at my house or on the phone <laughs> inviting me to do this. So yeah, he would take <laughs> me to these Jets, you know, the Jets and Giants for folks who don't know, everybody knows if you're into professional sports, I'm sure. They play in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah in the Meadowlands. So it was close to where we lived and yeah, I, look, you get to eat food, you know, garbage food <laughs> while you watch something, you know, I'd watch anything. The only problem is it'd be freezing out, you know. Oh uh, yeah. Kind of a, there's kind of a, a there's a reason when yeah. you live on the East Coast, yeah. and you get tickets to a sporting event for football, yeah. there's a reason. Because yeah. they look at the forecast, and they're like, 10 below, snow. Yeah. Hey, you want these tickets? <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, I'll take them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, my uncle was in the sports, so he knew. He knew what he was in for. Mm-hmm. And he would have, you know, I'd have to bundle up. So, of course, I was wearing, and I talked about this on the show, I think with Don Ape, I would wear my Houston Oilers jacket <laughs> that my mom picked out for me because it didn't matter what team was on there. So I'd be getting booed at the you know the Jets mm-hmm. stadium. God forbid they were playing the Oilers that day. That would be really bad. <laughs> the only other thing I remember going to is Mets game after they won. It was eighty six. They won right eighty six uh, World Series. I, I think it was eighty six. Yeah, that's the the bestest Mets team ever. So like eighty seven, eighty eight. Everybody's into the Mets. But I, prior to that, the the girl that I was dating at the time in high school, their family had already been in the Mets into the Mets for you know it's like a generation. So. 
I remember they were part of some group that planned a bus trip out to you know, Metz Field, whatever it was called then. And uh, I went along because you know, it was my girlfriend. I didn't know. I felt so. It was one of those situations. that's like, I wish I knew more about sports <laughs> because God forbid her father starts talking baseball to me. What am I going to do? I know nothing about this and trying to impress the, you know, the father of the girl that I'm dating. So did you just talk Dungeons and Dragons with him? I was terrified of him. So I don't know that I talked to him at all. Uh, <laughs> like my dad, he was a Vietnam vet, but unlike my dad, he had three daughters. So he, ah. he was, you know, he didn't, he left very little leeway for any boys in, that came into the family to, you know, mm-hmm. so no, I was terrified. Now here is the ultimate highlight from my sporting career okay. as a kid. Yeah. 1983. Okay. I'm 11. I'm on a bowling team. Oh. My bowling team is called the King Cobras. (laughs) It's me and four of my Mm. bestest buddies from our neighborhood. Okay. Because when you bowled, you had to get your own team together. They didn't just divvy everybody up. Mm. So it was me and my four best friends at the time. Right. We came in fourth in the nation that year for the one game high total. Wow. That's Our fantastic. Game, yeah. The five of us combined for a 971. All right. So let's see. I got to do math here. 971 mm-hmm. divided by five. This is one. Do you know the only answer to this? This is five carried by four. Mm-hmm. It's 47. That's nine, 21. 197 average? Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. We kicked the out of that That's game. That's crazy. Especially for a bunch of, what, 11-year-olds? Yeah. Wow. I've broken 100 once bowling. <laughs> that was recently. Maybe I even got a 110. Yeah, my high game's 222. Holy cow, that's fantastic. You know, the only time I ever remember being in a bowling alley in the 1980s was, I think it was my friend Mark's birthday party hmm. at this, so even surprisingly had this place. It was right near where I went to learn, to my piano lessons, a bowling alley there. And as a kid, I was terrified of socializing with anybody I didn't know. So parties were intimidating. My parents or my mom dropping me off at a party at a bowling alley, which is just like on the street in the city. There it is right there, yeah. just going right inside. <laughs> I was scared and I was probably nine yeah. or 10 years old. So I go in there, a bunch of my friends playing bowling. I was scared to embarrass myself playing bowling. Again, remember father playing yeah. catch. I had my glasses on though. But all the only thing I remember is people bowling the whole time. And what I did was I played Tempest because they had a yeah. Tempest well, machine there. Of course. It's all I did. And that's why I love Tempest. Yeah. They got to have video games for the kids that got dropped off there. Yeah. You know, with a sibling or whatever. Mm. I think we had claw. We had a whole arcade inside the bowling alley. I think. Yeah, those are the best ones. I, I yeah. mean, in later life I've experienced that, but. But yeah, the only reason that I even remember the score and all of that is I now have in my possession the newspaper yep. clipping from that day. No kidding. Because they ran it in the newspaper. Okay. And my grandmother, when she passed, still had it in her house in a frame. Wow, that's sweet. So along with the baseball cards. Another newspaper clipping she kept about something unrelated to sports. And that was pretty much the only three things that I took out of their house. No kidding. And and I also have a picture of my trading cards, my baseball cards mm-hmm. from when I was a kid. Yeah, we'll stick one of those in the box for Kathy. Yeah, I do have an extra one. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody will sign that for you. And you can throw it away when you get it. Just kidding. Just yeah, you can kidding. see that it took me a long time to clear four foot something. <laughs> Oh, anything else? I think that wraps up this part. All right. Hey, with that, why do I always say a right hey? I don't know. With that, I'm going to try not to now from now on. Why? I don't know. I think I say, it's you know, just, what was the other phrase? Like I, when, it's just like when you stopped using crowbar. Oh, is that what it was? Crowbar. I was trying yeah, to do that. Crowbar. It was your catchphrase there for like a long time. Crowbar. And then 
Huh. I'm just going to crowbar I mean, this. There was in something right else, here. too. I think crowbar was the second thing. There was something else before that. Uh, but for some know. reason, every time you start to get a catchphrase, you just move <laughs> on from it. Well, they're the worst catchphrases. Like, is, all right, <laughs> hey, you're not going to put that on a t shirt. <laughs> well, I guess you could. You could put, like, hey, you, you guys. Can put any, or, you can put oh, anything you want on a t shirt. That's true. That's true. Well, all right, hey, in a moment. Speaking of sports from the 1980s, in a moment we'll be joined by our guest, the author of Great 1980s Sports Moments, Mr. Dan Flaherty. Our guest today is the creator of thesportsnotebook.com, a website that takes a deep dive into the historical moments that impacted professional sports today. He's also the author of The Last Golden Age, The Lou Holtz Years at Notre Dame, and Great 1980s Sports Moments. You can find them both on Amazon.com. Please welcome to the show, Dan Flaherty. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey, thanks for joining us today. So on our show, you know, we're always looking to try to prove objectively how different the 1980s was. And we don't often, if at all, get to speak with someone about sports. Ray has been, Ray is, you know, our in-house sports expert. So he's been keeping me <laughs> apprised of what's <laughs> happened in the 1980s. Because I will tell you, Dan, right off the bat, I know very little about sports in any case. So we appreciate you coming on the show to help us talk about some of the moments that made the eighties unique and different because, you know, for us, not only growing up in that decade, did it seem special, but based on your book here, great 1980 sports moments, the decade was filled with plenty of unique things in one span of 10 years that you might not have, we might not have seen since or before. Yeah, it was, it really was an amazing decade. And I mean, everybody can kind of think that the decade they grew up in was the best. I mean, you know, you're you're a kid, you know, you don't really have a lot of worries. So like whatever your interest is just kind of absorbs all your attention. But, yep. you know, like even just in going back through it, I was just, you know, realizing like, oh my gosh, like all the, you know, so much of the way that we view sports, I mean, not just our generation, but the ones that came after, hmm. like were formed in the 1980s. And, um, you know, a really good example of that is, and very timely right now, is yep. the way March Madness and the NCAA tournament developed. Yes, we wanted to ask you about that, actually, because we were talking about that earlier mm -hmm. on the show. Yeah, you know, that kind of, I mean, it really kind of started in the late 1970s, where okay. it used to be kind of the way high school tournaments used to be back in the 80s. They just grabbed the teams in the local areas, they threw them all together, and... You know, like in the mid-1970s, it wasn't unusual for the top two teams in the country to play prior to the Final Four. It wasn't like it is now where you have this seated bracket, mm. you know, every, you know, teams are playing cross-country opponents, intersectional matchups. But you saw a process that started and, you know, and officially it began in the late 1970s. They began to seed the bracket a little bit and create some more balance and matchups. Then in 79, you had Larry Bird and Magic Johnson play for the national championship. But in the 1980s, you had a string of fluid events that happened that really made March Madness what it is. In, um, in 1980, you had the first instant of several surprise teams making the Final Four. Mm. Prior to that, mm. college basketball was not renowned for Cinderella stories the way it is now or anything. In uh, 1981, you saw a flurry of highly favored teams go down like right, right off the rip in the first round, wow. in the first and second round. 
And then in 1983, then you had the big breakthrough where NC State and Jimmy Valvano won this incredible surprise national championship, you know, right. an amazing play that, I mean, ESPN's done 30 for 30 documentaries on it. And then so, and two years later, Villanova upsets Georgetown and another shocking national championship. So now you're starting to see college basketball develop this reputation as March is the place where anything can happen. Like the little guy can step up and have a shot. And I think, and that's what attracts so many sports fans today to March Madness. So what is it that for, for a lay person who knows nothing about, very little about sports, I, I, and I don't, and I don't mind confessing that. What is it about, what was the change that in, come the 80s or late 70s that would have allowed for these, you know, lower seeded teams to even make it that we didn't see in prior decades? You know, and I'm just thinking about it simply. I just think, well, something, I must have, there must have been a change in the rules or? Um, yeah, there wasn't a change in the rules, but um, but basketball was getting more, college basketball in particular was getting more exposure. Uh, television was starting to become a major player. In, in getting more games on TV. Of course, ESPN had been founded in like, I think 1979 or so was the year it started. And you know, so you had that becoming a major factor. And the result of it is, is more teams were able to get exposure and conversely able to recruit better players. So, okay. I mean, you still had the powerhouses, the same teams were still good, but maybe the gap between the powerhouse and the middle class, so to speak, it was narrowed just enough so that on one, you know, in one game, you know, that anything could happen. Right. Whereas like if a, if a gap is too big, I mean, one game, you know, it can matter. I mean, I used to play, you know, Wednesday night basketball and there was a team we always longed to beat. And we always thought if we could just get hot one time, we could beat them <laughs> we played them 15 times and we lost every game. I mean, the gap was just too big, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but, but now, but, but as these middle-class teams got better, they could now win in one particular situation. And now it seems like, you know, to your point, folks could be more engaged as an audience because it's more exciting because Absolutely. if you're, if you're betting legally on a bracket somewhere or somehow, I don't know, we're not encouraging you to do anything illegal on the show, but if you bet on a bracket, <laughs> if you're able but to if do you that, so happen yes, to, you yeah, happen that's to, right. it's not advice. That's not advice, but yeah, then you could have greater stakes, greater odds. It's more exciting, more vested interest in, in the games. Certainly. I, I can't imagine before that. I guess it's just what happened. What do you, what you expect happens, happens. It's definitely wouldn't be as exciting as it was come the 1980s. Exactly. And of That's course, right. to your point, and I know this because only because I researched it, we got some firsts in addition to, you know, just the, the drama changing because of the way the teams were seated. And we had these uh, under uh, Cinderella underdog stories. We had the term March Madness first coined in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, thank you, Brent That's Musburger. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if he <laughs> if he planned. I don't know the story if he planned it or he was just inspired observing sort of what was going on. But, uh, you know, we have him to thank for that for the 1980s. The, the music that's played that anthem, one shining moment, you know, when they show the montages uh, of the highlights from the different games written in the 1980s in 1986 by someone named David Barrett. And the one thing I wanted to definitely check in with you is that the tournament grew, you know, the, the brackets, the size that we're used to now of 64 teams. And I don't know what's that extra four teams that they have now. I don't know what that means. Yeah. The first four, but it's yeah, the 64. It's like, right. Okay. But that started in 1985. So, you know, in addition to what you're talking about, sort of the emotional sort of experience of it, the excitement level, we just had some tweaks that, as you pointed out earlier, gave us March Madness as we experience it today. Exactly. And when you hit on with the 64 teams, like that's a big one. And that the, the tournament fundamentally now has not changed, you know, since 
since then. I mean, my math, well, it's about 35 years or so now. And, and a couple other changes in college basketball that happened in 86 and 87. They introduced a shot clock and they brought in the three-point line. So the sport itself was going through all these changes as well. But fundamentally, like by 1987, the NCAA tournament, as we know it and experience it, was in existence after about a, I would say, a 10-year period of fluid evolution. Yeah, and you mentioned in your book, and I, quite honestly, I didn't understand it again because I don't know much about sports. You were explaining about how the different different schools, you know, regionally had different three-point rules, uh, different yeah. three-point lines, and that they started experimenting with that, you know, very series. And then, you, I guess just to clarify, you're saying at some point, what we have now as far as how far it is, 18 feet or whatever it is, was set in the 1980s. That's exactly correct. Yeah, it was 1983 schools were the NCAA allowed allowed some experimentation. There was a famous game played in 1982. It wasn't in the NCAA tournament, but just prior to that, where North Carolina and Virginia were the two best teams in the country. And North Carolina had a two-point lead with nine minutes to go, and they just decided to hold the ball the rest of the game and just (laughs) kept passing it around forever. And There was this public outcry saying, you've got to have a shot clock. Mm. And then once you have a shot clock, a three-point line kind of goes with it because otherwise the defense will just kind of pack close to the basket. You know, you've got to be able to penalize them for doing that by shooting from long range. So the NCAA said, okay, both shot clock and three-point line, every conference can experiment. Right. And then, so they kind of looked at the results for a few years and then standardized everything. Wow. So, you know, speaking about timely, this is a timely for us for a different reason. Just a week or two ago, we had a gentleman on here, a professor, we were talking about Cold War pop culture and how the Cold War influenced the films that we got, you know, And, and we were suspecting maybe it was also vice versa in some instances where some of the films we got either worked as propaganda to scare the enemy from attacking America or just worked to make uh, relationships between the Soviets and America seem more normalized and seem make each other seem less like a threat. But I can't think of any other better example of the influence of the cold or the intersection of cold war and pop culture than the 1980 miracle on ice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, again, it's just, one of the disappointing things about doing a book on the 1980s was when you get to the end and you want to decide, like have a debate as to what the best moment is. And I yep. say this at the end, it's like, yep. well, look, there's one choice. I mean, anybody who says anything else is just <laughs> wrong. I mean, that's, <laughs> yep. And, um, but yeah, so like in 1980, you're in that situation. The Soviet Union is on the march. They've just invaded Afghanistan. There's just kind of a, you know, it, it's cold war tensions are very high, yep. you know, and, and merely from an athletic standpoint, the Soviet hockey team was so much better than the United States. And there was a lot of bitterness in the U.S. And not just simply because they were better. I mean, there's always a certain antagonism that exists toward the big dog in sports regardless. But there was the belief that the Soviets were violating the rules, what were, what were then the rules of amateurism in the Olympics, that um, Officially, their players were amateurs, but they were pretty much employees of the government in other aspects and <laughs> right. just traveled everywhere playing. It's all KGB agents. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, whereas we had to piece our t- team together from the best collegians and, right. you know, and train them in a matter of a couple of months. So there was that antagonism that existed. And it also added to just how big of an upset this was that these kids just come together and beat this team that's been dominating international competition for several years playing together. Yeah. I just picture the entire Soviet hockey team looking like Ivan Drago, like every single one (laughs) that came out of a machine, genetically engineered, you know, doped up, whatever necessary to make them 
roided out and jacked up. You mentioned the you know the tensions at the time, of course, because Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan. The U.S. already said they were not going to go to the Summer Olympics, which was happening right. a few months later. The U.S. Mm-hmm. and like 66 or so other countries boycotted the Summer Olympics. But uh, the, the Winter Olympics was happening here uh, in Lake Placid, New York. So it was on home turf, so we were able to uh, compete in that. You know, I was thinking about how the di- one of the differences in the 80s versus today, the technology. You know, we didn't watch that first game, that first, what do you call hockey? Your hockey games, right? Hockey game live, because <laughs> nobody knew what to expect. Oh, they did, they thought they knew what to expect. It was going to yeah, be thought, thought did, yeah. a resounding defeat, especially since they did an exhibition game at MS, uh, Madison Square Garden two weeks earlier. But mm-hmm. I'm surprised that since we watched it on tape delay, I guess because we didn't have the internet, it wasn't spoiled. Like folks were still able That's to right. be glued to their sets. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean- you couldn't, I mean, like I'm one who tries to watch games delayed and it's hard. Like mm. you kind of have to wall yourself off from the world <laughs> for a day or so until you can get the game in, or you have to tell everybody like, don't text me anything and, yeah. and turn off your notifications that, yeah. So you have that game. And again, and that really more than anything underscores the difference in, in media. Cause you know, another moment I mentioned in the book, like when magic Johnson won his first NBA championship for the Lakers, that game was on tape delay too, the one that, that won it all. So right. yeah, very different, very different world. You know, I was surprised to learn. And again, I only, and I only learned this from reading your book and my imagination, we saw the game, the U S won. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. They're on the stands now. Gold medals are put on everybody, but no, the fact that they beat the Soviet Union, as you say in your book, didn't even clinch the bronze. Yeah, the way the format worked is um, you went through group play and there were the teams were split into two groups and then you played everybody in your group and then the top two advanced to what was called the medal round. And that's mm-hmm. that's similar to what exists today. And the four teams that made it, the U.S. and Sweden made it out of their group and the Soviets and Finland made it out of theirs. And then... But you didn't move into a semifinal bracket the way you would typically in, in any kind of a tournament format. It was just it was determined up front. You'll play the two teams from the other division, and then you use the classic hockey point system, which is you get two points for a win and one point for a tie. Hmm. And um, the U.S. and Sweden had tied their game, so that they came in with one. And the Soviets had beaten Finland, so they had two points, and Finland had none. So you knew who you were going to play on. It was Friday, Sunday that this, you know, that the U S knew who they were going to play win or lose on Friday. They were going to play Finland on Sunday. And, but, but they did come in trailing the Soviets by a point as well too. So like even beating them, they were still only a point ahead. If they had lost to Finland, the Soviets could have won and retaken the lead and reclaimed the gold medal. And, um, you know, and I'm forgetting how the complete scenario broke out, sure. but you know, when I broke it all down, it was like, yeah, okay. If the, if everything would have fallen that they could have been left out of the metal picture entirely. Yeah. So, um, and again, so it's, it's not just that the Soviets that they had to beat Finland, you know, I think, you know, some, a lot of people that watch those Olympics might look back and remember that, okay, yeah, the Soviets was the first game, but it wasn't a semifinal game in a true tournament format. It was just a point system. And if the U.S. had lost, everything could have been could have been lost at that point. Right. So many, yeah, so many things had to go right, it seems. Yeah. And thank goodness, because what an emotional sort of, I don't know, we would have robbed. I would have felt, we would have felt robbed, I think, if we beat the, well, no. The Soviet thing was such a Cinderella story in itself that I don't think anybody could have taken that uh, victory away, even minus the gold, even if they hadn't. Uh, metal. No, I mean, they definitely, that would always be a historic moment. At the same time, there's no question it would, its impact would have been lessened had they not finished it with the gold medal. Yeah. And such a, 
you know, again, in the, in the context of the Cold War, such a important victory, again, sort of a message that would send, you know, abroad in here that uh, you couldn't make, well, you couldn't, I say you could, it was, it was cinematic. This, you know, you couldn't write a better story. I mean, you could, you could beat, write Rocky, you know, beating Ivan Drago and having a, uh, and ending the Cold War in, in a film. But, um, but yeah, such an important victory. Another interesting story, and again, we'll just stay on Cold War for just another moment, is the, uh, is, uh, I was thinking about uh, the, the long-time rivalry between Martina Navratilova and uh, Chris Everett and thinking about it because, and as you point out in the book, and again, this is something that didn't, certainly didn't occur to me as, you know, growing up in the 1980s. And I was a tennis fan. If I watched any sports, I probably peeked in on tennis because I, I played it somewhat just for fun, really. Was the idea that Martina Navratilova was a first, was being held back initially. She was, a you know, working to be a tennis pro. She grew up, though, in, in, in communist-controlled Czechoslovakia, but was held back because the Soviet Union would decide, you know, who she played and when she played, etc., so as a result, and again, we talk, sort of talked about this concept a couple of weeks ago was she defected. Right. And once she defects, she, you know, is really becomes a power, a powerhouse uh, in, in the, in this, in tennis. Yeah. I mean, she, she changed tennis. There isn't yeah. any question about that. And then, and I, you know, her and Chris Everett Lloyd, I mean, when you think of the great rivalries of the 1980s, I mean, it's just like you go, there's Bird and Magic Johnson, but yeah. then Martina and Chris Everett Lloyd is like right after that. And I say that as one, like, you know, I had to do some education on tennis as a part of writing this book. Yeah. Uh, you know, a good, a friend of mine, like, you know, played uh, tennis and got, you know, messed, got pretty close to the pro circuit and was able to give me some pointers and insights on on, on the players and, and the matches and everything. And then I went back and watched video, especially of the, that 1985 French Open they played, like, you right. know, just going back, even just going back and watching it years later was just an epic battle that Martina and Chris Everett had. And, you know, without her defection, we would not have had any of that. I mean, it would have been great for Chris Everett Lloyd to yeah. dominate the sport. But uh, although yeah. I think even she would agree that I think the sport was better off with the rivalry and with Martina. So it's... Uh, yes. And in that final, in that 1985 French Open you referred to, it was close, but ultimately oh, Everett yeah. Lloyd delivers the final. Everett Lloyd won, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the French Open was always kind of her baby. So, because that's played on clay, whereas the other ones aren't. So that she handled that surface a little bit better. As, as you as you point out in your book, though, uh, Martina Navratilova made the Wimbledon final 12 times every year from 82 to 90. So, yeah. Uh, this is another opportunity for us to plug America. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> your, even your best athletes are coming here in the 1980s. That's right. Yep. Yeah. My my favorite tennis moment is John McEnroe in the eighties. Okay. I think he sums up the eighties pretty well with his <laughs> with his attitude. That's <laughs> yeah, and there's some moments with him in the book too. Like in yeah. 1980, he had an epic battle with Jorn Borg, and um, but yeah, then and then he he ended up cashing his uh, you know mindset into some commercials too with you know our argue with his argumentative uh, ways. Yeah. But I also, yep. I remember uh, Agassi's a big part of the 80s, too, because of the cool hair. <laughs> that was the two with me and my friends, because I had a buddy who played tennis also, and he would drag me down to the court to play with him. And the way he tricked me into it was, check out John McEnroe, because he knew that's more my style, and he liked Andre Agassi. So if only we had a tennis player come along with great hair and anger issues, that would have been your like <laughs> ultimate <laughs> yeah. person. If I just had to recall from my youth, of course, Mary Lou Retton jumps to mind. And- one thing I had forgotten until I read your book, though, was that she had, in addition to just having to be an, like an all-star athlete to be able to win a gold medal at the Olympics, she had a 
challenge that I didn't recall. Yeah, that's right. Uh, she had had some, and and this is actually something just in researching, like I didn't recall it either, but like oh, yeah. when I was just, you know, writing down and brainstorming lists and, and full disclosure, like I benefited from the work of uh, some friends who I asked who I should write about. One friend said Mary Lou Redmond. I was like, oh my gosh, I would have completely forgotten about her. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, but of course, once it's on your mind, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah she was on the Wheaties boxes and everything. But um, <laughs> but anyway, she had had some leg surgery. And like for a normal person, she was healed by the time the Olympics started. But it was when she does the landing on her gymnastics routine. Right it would be, it would basically would hurt the leg to land. And not only did she have to land, she had to land and stick firmly. It's like, no, you can't lean forward or anything like that. And she needed to get a perfect 10 to win the gold medal. So the slightest failure would have cost it. And, but she landed, she landed on that weak leg, held perfectly and, and won the gold medal. And, and again, like she doesn't become Mary Lou Retton with a silver medal. She's still yeah. a great athlete and it would still be an extraordinary display of courage, but the, this overall cultural impact came because she stuck the landing and won the gold medal. As your book highlights, so many fantastic underdog type stories in the 1980s. You know, one of the other <laughs> things that I think about with the 1980s and you think about the, when I think about Miracle on Ice or the Olympics generally, um, and some of these other moments, there's plenty of moments where I felt like we came together as a nation in a sense where certainly there were rival rivalries and, you know, one person's a fan of rooting for some team or another, but it seemed like there were certain moments when we were all a certain fan of a team. Like, I don't know, was everybody a Mets fan in 86? But maybe not. But I could say in 1985, everybody seemed to be a fan of the Chicago Bears. They were incredibly popular. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, they had that video, the Super Bowl shuffle that I talked oh, yeah. about in the book. And, um, and again, you talk about how things have changed and, you know, it was like after week 11 or something, they were 11 and 0 and they made a video. It was a rap song that said, like, basically, we're doing the Super Bowl shuffle. <laughs> and, um, and all the proceeds went to fight hunger in Chicago. So a terrific cause and everything. Yeah. Having said that, if a team makes that video today, can you imagine how thoroughly that's going to blow up on Twitter <laughs> and social media? <laughs> and, you know, like Skip Bayless and other talk pundits are going to go crazy every day talking about how they've, you know, <laughs> How, how could Chicago proclaim that they've won the Super Bowl already? And, um, right. and like, now I do wonder in retrospect, like, like I, I wonder if that was bulletin board material in opposing teams' locker rooms, like <laughs> after they, they did that. But I mean, it certainly didn't create like the national, you know, story that it would, that it would today. Right. It, was, it was just kind of, we saw it for what it was. It was a fun thing that and, you know, a team that was out of having a big year did. Which Ray loves, by the way. Oh, I had that on 45. He knows all the words to well, that I song. I used to, pretty much. I used to, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I played it on the show once, and Ray immediately started rapping along with it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you pretty much can't find it on YouTube. For a while, there was some real oh, yeah. grainy clip of it, but mm. like even like in doing searching, the, the NFL's copyright hounds must have yes. gotten a hold of that somehow. Yeah. So, Ray, should we talk about, can we talk about you can, it? You can talk about it if you really want to. It's just a tragedy, but go ahead. <laughs> so I do love bringing up, if only to see Ray cringe, the drive <laughs> and the fumble. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of feeling bad for Ray too, because I feel the same way in, in his shoes. But yeah, um, the Cleveland Browns and Denver Broncos played in the AFC championship game two straight years, and they were both fabulous games. Both teams were by far the best in the AFC um, you know, so they were expected matchups when they got there, very anticipated by football fans. And yep. 
1986, um, playing in Cleveland, the Browns were ahead 20 to 13 with five minutes to go. And John Elway leads a 98 yard drive oh. for a touchdown that ties the game and they win in overtime. Mm-hmm. In 1987, they rematch that the rematch is in Denver. Um, Cleveland falls behind 21 to three, pulls even 31 31. Denver takes the lead with about five minutes to go. Cleveland starts their own version of a drive to tie the game, but Ernest Beiner fumbles on about the one or two yard line. Oh, no. and it gets oh. recovered. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and watching the video of that game, I don't know if this is going to make a Browns fan feel better or for worse or worse, but watching <laughs> we've, the 86-1. We've got one, one here. Find yeah, out. <laughs> so like, I'll be curious to see what Ray's reaction is. Because is, yep. I come from this, from the perspective, I absolutely love Marty Schottenheimer, who was the Browns coach at that time, one of my favorite all-time NFL coaches. And it, it pains me that he never got to a Super Bowl or anything. And the 86 was the closest that he got. And when you look at that drive that Elway put on, the Browns did nothing wrong that drive. There were some throws Elway made where you like, like this receiver is like perfectly covered. There's three guys like surrounding him. Like Elway just, you know, a line I use in the book is like, I keep saying Elway rifled a certain, you know, a 20 yard pass. And when I say rifle, like it's pretty literal. I mean, this was Mm -hmm. just, you know, like there's one guy that could have made those throws in that, in that era. It was Elway. So you know, it was like, they, you know, if nothing else, they, they didn't give it away. Like they, you know, it's just a great player just did something extraordinary. Well, part of the problem was, is they kept dr- drifting in and out of that, that goddamn prevent defense. <laughs> That's like, you're just giving up chunk yards. Cause in the early downs, they were in the prevent, like, Oh, we just got to stop him. And like mm-hmm. you said, he, he literally has a shotgun for an arm. Yeah. So giving him that much space is not a good idea. Yeah, and like, and the fatal play was like Denver was still in their own half of the field, but they were facing third and eighteen. So Cleveland had it in a position where they could put it away, and that might would probably go to your point there that like, you know, they were maybe thinking Elway would try to pick up half on third down, half on fourth down, and Elway just rifled a twenty yard pass and picked up the first down and kept the drive, the drive going. But um, does that make you feel any better, Ray? What Dan said? No. No, I didn't think so. That's, nah. that's, you, Dan, is there and, anything? And in 1987, <laughs> I mean, in 1987, like the Browns offense was just so hot in that comeback. Like, cause the way the game started, you were just like, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. You kind of, kind of mentally tune it out basically. You think, okay, Denver's going to win. Hmm. And then Bernie Kosar just got as hot as you could imagine a quarterback. I mean, it's like he dropped back and you just, you knew he was going to complete it. It was hmm. just, that was it the only way they were going to be stopped is by what happened, like with a fumble. You mm-hmm. know, if they would have won the coin toss in overtime, they were, they were going to march down and score and win in overtime. It's really, you know, I, I don't know that. And I, and I, yeah. and again, like I love her in a spiner cause I'm a Redskins fan and Biner would later go to the Redskins. So I've always liked and admired him and just like, I just felt for him and I've watched that play. And again, it doesn't look like he really did anything wrong. You know, he's not like, yeah. doesn't have the ball hanging loose, but another guy got his hand in there yeah. and popped it out. That's the weird thing about it is after that, there was no way Biner could play in Cleveland. I know. He, he just right. couldn't. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm having a hard time right now with Rashard Higgins coming back this season after that <laughs> screw up on the goal line in the playoffs this year. <laughs> It's like, man, how do I root for this guy when he totally, like, is he going to do that again? <laughs> like you said, uh, Biner was amazing. 
and he was great in Washington. Yeah, no, right. It's just, it's one of those things that happens. It's the, it's the part of sports where it can be kind of cruel, you know, like uh, yeah. you get to this point and you have that season and, um, and like in those Browns teams are actually good examples is that, you know, like you would hate, it's, it's, it's sad to think of them as like for those narrow losses. I mean, they were really good teams, you know? Yeah. The only thing I can say about that is I'm glad Bill Buckner can't bend over because it really takes the pressure <laughs> off the Browns for the yeah. screw up. <laughs> That's right. It kind of shifted the focus a little bit. Yeah. So, so you know, and I, I say I tease right, but I can, I, I certainly can feel, I feel that that's terrible, man, to lose that way. Certainly when you're talking about uh, the fumble in particular, gosh, it's, you know, I didn't watch it at the time, but it's, I can imagine how it's upsetting. So, so Ray, so you've invoked the name of Bill Buckner, another infamous uh, play, let's say uh, from the 1980s. Dan, can you explain to us uh, what Bill Buckner did, (laughs) right or wrong? That's right. And um, yeah, I want to, you know, even though I have a Wisconsin accent from where I'm from, I live in (laughs) just outside of Boston right now. So I'm going to apologize in advance to all the people (laughs) back home. Watch this for putting you through this. But Ray sucked it up so we can too. (laughs) Yes. But on 1986, it's the World Series, the Red Sox. They haven't won it since 1918. And they're ahead of the Mets three games to two. So it's game six. They're playing at New York against the Mets. They're ahead in the 10th inning of game six. It's five to three. There's two outs. There's nobody on base. And there's two strikes. And in sequence, three straight guys get singles. So it's now five to four. And and then there's a... um. Well, five to four, and there's runners on first and third. Then there's a, a pass ball, or actually it's a wild pitch, and um, the tying run comes in, and another runner goes to second. So now it's five to five. The Red Sox have given given the lead away, but the game is still going on. And then Mookie Wilson for the Mets hits a ground ball to first. It looks like it's going to end the inning, and we're just going to go on to the 11th, but it goes underneath Bill Buckner's legs. And the winning run comes around. You can still hear Vin Scully on NBC. It's like, it's through Buckner. And here comes Knight and the Mets win. Uh, and um, so the series goes on to game seven. The Red Sox jump out to a 3 nothing lead in game seven. But the Mets come back. And, um, you know, not quite as dramatic this time. But it was still, you know, they gave up the lead in, in a good game. The Mets win. Won the World Series. And the Red Sox had to wait 18 more years before they finally uh, won the won a World Series. Yeah. Of all the teams to have to face that year, the Red Sox had to face that Mets team. Like, That's right. Yeah. And again, you know, and we talk about the cruelty yeah. of sports and how like maybe remembering teams like for how good they were, mm-hmm. that the Mets were the heavy favorite in that series, like all season long. They came into the season yeah. as the favorite. They won 108 games. You know, they were, you know, they were expected to win. And the Red Sox went more than toe to toe with them. And they were sitting there in position to win. And, and it's, again, it's another case where as a Red Sox fan, it isn't going to make you feel any better because you still got that close. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, yeah. um, but I think, but it is to underscore like how much that team really achieved to get yeah. to that point. And, right? and that, that's a, another good point for, for the Red Sox and the Browns both. Yep. Had they won those games, they would be among some of the greatest sports stories in the history of sports. That's right. Mm-hmm. But the stories always get told about the teams who pulled it off, like the Miracle on Ice, 
like you said, if they didn't get the gold, I don't think it's as impressive a story as it turned out to be. That's right. Then it's just like you, you still might remember like, oh, yeah, they upset the Soviet Union. It was a great upset. But it's like but they're not making documentaries about it 40 right. years later or anything. I gotta think Bill Buckner, you know, in that moment, it's got to be a flash of Little League. You know, that's like everyone's yeah. worst fear in your Little League. The ball is just going to get by you in some ridiculous way. Yeah. And um, and now Bill Buckner's kind of place in history, I would say, has kind of been slowly reclaim. Part of it is, is the Red Sox have won championships now. So like pain heals that. And Ray, just let me encourage you to say when that Super Bowl <laughs> trophy comes to Cleveland, you have no idea how good it's going to feel. And it's going to come yeah. about. <laughs> you you got a quarterback there now. And then like yeah. they showed some real progress. Your, your kids will put flowers on your grave when that happens. Yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> but the other thing with Buckner too is, and the point people really forget is the Red Sox had already given up the lead in that game. Uh, I mean, right. They, the, the game was tied. All the momentum was going against them. And then, and they still had the next night, uh, you know, the next game to, to bounce back in. So it's, you know, it was a real, it was an embarrassing play. It was kind of a symbol of Red Sox frustration for so many years, mm. but it really does have to be put in perspective. You know, Bill Buckner was a heck of a player. And even that one mistake, you know, as embarrassing as it was, like wasn't as awful as, it, as even as it looked at the time. Yeah. Had they been able to come back and win a world series the next year, could have erased it immediately, but it just dragged mm-hmm. down for a long time. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's that's right. So, you know, it's interesting. We started off talking about uh, the different things unique from the 1980s and so many moments that were these underdog stories, you know, when the it seems like these magical moments of folks who weren't expected to win coming through and in the way that it changed sports, in, in some instances, changed sports. You know, we're talking about March Madness. And then, I guess that's the thrill of victory. Now I'm realizing this is the, uh, what the words they said on what was Wide it? world of sports. Wide world of sports, right? <laughs> yeah. But there's also the agony of defeat because likewise in the 1980s, you had these moments we're talking about uh, with the, the fumble and the drive and and uh, what's Bill Buckner's referred to? Some catchy um, name for that. It, it doesn't have a catchphrase. Oh, it it's the Buckner. It's just so horrible. Play, they yeah. didn't even give it a name. It's the Buckner. Yes. It's the Buckner. <laughs> so the 1980s was filled with these different iconic moments, both highs and lows. Uh, and Dan, uh, we certainly appreciate your time uh, giving us the, the rich detail that you provided, not only on our show, but in Dan's book, Great 1980s Sports Moments, which is available on amazon.com. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, no, this was fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah it's always fun to talk sports with somebody who actually... <laughs> That's no sports. <laughs> so hmm, I learned a lot reading Dan's book and talking to Dan. I'll probably forget it shortly after this episode. But what I do remember right now, though, is and in, in, in timely as it is, is the impact that certain changes to March Madness had on the March Madness experience today. You know, we started off at the beginning talking about some of the upsets. I would never have known or understood that we wouldn't even have those today, but for some tweaks they made to the program back when we were kids. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But I don't know if we proved anything about the 1980s, <laughs> well, though. You know we proved something. I'm, I'm not sure. It's why I turn to you. Well, I don't think you're going to like this one. <laughs> we have proven, okay. beyond a shadow of a doubt, okay. that most of our generation, yeah. as far as sports go, mm-hmm. peaked in oh. the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like that one, because it's, it's true of... Our friends in sports, not me. I mean, I, I didn't peak. I never peaked. Uh, but also of <laughs> pop culture in the decade. Yeah. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The 80s. See ya. See ya.